2: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Book Report. My name is Adam, and I am joined, as always, by your master teacher, Caitlin. You How's it got go, Caitlin? it
1: right this time. No,
2: no dungeon teacher here. No, no crazy dungeon teacher Only master here. teachers.
1: <laughs> Hi, guys.
2: We've quoted that so many times, I feel like, just making fun mm-hmm. of me. Dungeon teacher. no
1: dungeon teacher.
2: I'm sure I'll make that mistake again at some point, but not today. Not today. So, we are here. We have finished uh, and gone through another book, Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming if you're here listening to this, it means you've finished that storyline. If you haven't, stop what you're doing, go backwards, consume all of it, enjoy it, swim in it, uh, you know, really just bask (laughs) in it. (laughs) marinate exactly all of those things and then when you're done and you're ready to move on to the next thing and just comprehend everything you've just experienced and gone through and then want to hear the literature side of it you're in the right place so we're here to talk about Moby Dick with our English teacher Caitlin in-house English teacher and so I think I want to jump right in
1: let's do it please please
2: the history of Moby Dick, how it came about. What can you tell me about it?
1: Well, do you want to know about Herman Melville or do you want to know more about the history of the book? Because I have information both ways. And as we were yes. talking, you know, as we were talking before this <laughs> this recording, I was even saying to you, like, I there's there's so much to this. Um, and that's going to be something that I will always have to watch out for with these book report episodes is I have to Too figure much out what's, information. Yeah, I figure think out it's what's interesting I, and then fill the time with just the, the good nuggets.
2: I, I think wherever you think would be best. I mean, I, I think it's cool to hear about Herman Melville, maybe the, you know, the writer, how he came, like his life, how he came about to writing this story, the reasoning behind it. And then we can dive into the book itself. So yeah, if you want to take a step back before Moby Dick was actually written and just have information on Herman Melville, that'd that'd be great.
1: I think it's a good idea because Herman Melville brought so much of his personal life into this. He brought his experiences of over a decade uh, working and even being on whaling ships onto this. So he did bring... Um, his knowledge and in, in his descriptions aren't just hearsay or gathering information from other people, but it involves sights, sounds, and even misadventures that he himself went through. So just to back up a, ge- a bit to give you some context of where we are Herman Melville was born in 1819, and if you remember our last book report, (laughs) 1819 is the year after Frankenstein was published. So Melville and Mary Shelley for Frankenstein, they were contemporaries. They were living and working um, within the same sphere of influence and even just around the same time frame on the world stage. And a lot of people would consider Melville to be a dark romantic, which is something I talked about before with regards to Mary Shelley. But she took a more gothic approach to it. And then worked, uh, with Melville, he took a well a more American approach to the dark romantic movement. But I'll, I'll get to that in a bit.
2: So wait, wait, real quick, I didn't know he was a whaler himself. He actually worked on a, on a whaling vessel and yeah. Yeah, hunted he, whales. Oh, wow.
1: He became a sailor at the age of 19, spent several years in the South Pacific, um, where he eventually became a member of a whaling crew. And during his time on that, he visited exotic places. He spent time living among native island populations. Um, Specifically, there are a few that uh, even sparked other earlier works. Uh, He actually was very successful as a writer before he got to Moby Dick because he became kind of like that that adventure writer trope of of an author where he wrote these wildly popular stories about sailors and about adventures on the sea and even some about pirates. Would and I have
2: heard any of those other books?
1: No, when I was looking at them too, I'm like, I I don't, I think they were very popular for the time in that they were easy to read and they were kind of gobbled up, but they didn't have a lot of lasting influence. And you, you've seen a lot of his journaling and what he attempts to write um, as the years go by, just this discontent with the subject matter he was dealing with. He wanted to go deeper. He wanted to explore Maybe even the spiritual side and the symbolic uh, parts of the human spirit within his writing, and so he didn't want it to just be, you know, he he didn't want to just do popcorn summer blockbuster action movies. He wanted to do some indie movies as well. But, gotcha.
2: And was and was he's uh, American, right? It, was he yes. in Maine or like Nantucket or? Well, he was or, born in
1: New York. Um, his, oh. Okay. His his family actually is weaved in the into U.S. history. So, his grandfather on his dad's side um, was actually a member of the 1773 Boston Tea Party. Oh,
2: and wow. then
1: his grandpa on his mom's side was a buddy of James Fenimore Cooper, um, famous writer for the Leatherstocking Tales, Last of the Mohicans, that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. And also leading the defense of the Fort Stanwicks against the British in upstate New York. So deeply entrenched in the founding of the United States and um, keeping uh, its own foothold on the world stage through wars. And so that kind of like was passed down and he was born to a wealthy family. They were in New York and they had a strong business. But unfortunately, as happens too often, in a lot of these, his father met an early death, and so with his father dying, and his older oldest eldest brother having to take over the family business didn't go too well. And so, uh, Herman Melville was only 15 years old when he had to drop out of school and work to support oh. his family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, you know, it, it, it's one of those unfortunate things that we see too often at this time frame. But, and that's
2: when he became a sailor, or was that like well, a, amongst a bunch of other jobs he would do?
1: In the four years, uh so the first four years after he started working, you know, as a farmhand and a clerk, even even working for the family business under his brother, that just was not working. He just did not like being in a desk job. <laughs> he was <laughs> he he did not like working indoors, and he did not like being a slave to that. Really, is is. I guess I shouldn't say that terminology, but he didn't—he didn't like being tamped down uh, with his own personal creativity because he had always been the storyteller of the family, and so under his brother's guidance, he got a job on a ship, and then that's where it all began.
2: And so he did. He was a whaler, and then he—he wa- he was. A semi-popular writer at the time, it sounds like. But writing stuff that maybe he wasn't necessarily uh, especially proud of, maybe. Maybe it was a little too, like you said, kind of equating it to movies a little bit more like summer blockbuster popcorn. But kind of surface level, just pulp kind of fun. As opposed yeah, to something yeah. of significance and carried weight and with like yeah. uh, resounding themes.
1: Exactly. He... he had this yearning to explore a lot of the darker parts of his own personality and just where his mind went. But looking at some of his first writings that are based off of his experiences as a sailor, they were pretty entertaining stories. Like his very first one that he published, that was in 1841. So he would have been 22 years old. Um, It's based off of an actual event he went through. He was on a whaling ship. Um, that anchored in the Marquesas Islands that's present-day French Polynesia where he and a shipmate jumped ship and they're like we're done with this we want to (laughs) leave and they actually like spent four months as guest captives like they weren't they weren't in shackles or anything they weren't kept there but it was clear like you're gonna you're gonna stay whether you like it or not and um, they were the this reputedly cannibalistic people named the Typees, and after four months, they finally kind of got bored with him, let him go, and he wrote of that story, and that became his very first novel, Typee, um, and just how do you dis- spell that? T Y P E E, and just describing a brand new culture to. These audiences in the United States who were not as well traveled were not as aware of other cultures beyond their own. Um, this incited a lot of excitement. His second one actually is about a a mutiny that he was a part of. <laughs> like, he actually uh, was a part of a, a failed mutiny where he was thrown into jail. Oh no! Um, and then he broke out within two days. <laughs> so he wrote about and what that. What was that where, called? Oh, uh, the Ono Onu. O N O O.
2: Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, I no. didn't realize he wrote so many. I guess he wrote about what he knew and yeah, what he, knew he was did being a sailor. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. And and the the stories themselves are highly entertaining. Um, but you can see like after his first few were very popular, and so editors were asking, "Hey, we want more like this." Well, not only did he run out of stories that were as entertaining as those. You know, you can't just have your whole work. You're going to run out of stories. You're going to run out of these. true life stories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he just was tired of it. And so he tried to go into political writing where he did uh, just these scathing stories about American practices at sea of impressment, which is like forcing people to work on a ship against their will and also just abuse of sailors and abuse of workers. Mm. And it was a sort of a whistleblowing uh, type deal, but it it wasn't one of those where a lot of people wanted to buy it and read it. So it got attention critically, but it was not paying the bills as it, it was supposed to for him. And so he kept coming back to this pressure to write these Poppy, you know, action-packed stories right. that he had no interest whatsoever. Um, I, I,
2: before I, w- I want to put a I want to put a pin in this real quick because I want to come back to it's because it sounds like we're leading to Moby Dick because mm-hmm. um, it sounds like that would be the maybe the perfect amalgamation of resounding themes and uh, share uh, sharing details of a new world that a lot of readers wouldn't know about. Mm -hmm. With also maybe the pulpy side of sailors chasing after this giant whale. So it sounds like a perfect marriage of what he was trying to do. But before I get there, I'm going to go back a bit. So you mentioned that he was writing, Herman Melville was writing in a similar uh, genre as Mary Shelley was, which Mm -hmm. was dark romanticism. And I know that when you were talking about Mary Shelley, you were talking a lot about how that genre was a lot of writers exercising the this inner anguish or these inner demons. And in that case, it sounded like she was wrestling with the death of her, of her child uh, or possibly even multiple, maybe children. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what bore, uh, that's kind of what born Frankenstein. I, I wonder, do you know, was there any kind of similar anguish or unrest or something that Herman Melville was was wrestling with that made him choose to write in this kind of genre?
1: Yes. So to give it a wider context before I focus in on Herman Melville specifically, what Mary Shelley was a part of was dark romanticism. And that... You know, she was in Europe and that started before it came over to America. And so by the time it got to the United States, this movement of romanticism, especially within the arts, um, it had been going for a while in Europe and then it morphed itself, as many things do in the States. And so... Americans took it and kind of made it their own and so we get an offshoot of romanticism in the U.S. specifically known as transcendentalism which is which really became this philosophy of you can rise above what you have in life you can transcend the boundaries of your life if you truly march to the beat of your own drum and you live your life's full potential without worryingly conforming to society. Much like Romanticism, Transcendentalism was optimistic. It it was seen that people were naturally good, that um, the wisest person you could come across is a baby because they were innocent and unblemished by society, and so the purpose was to become just like that. Uh, And... There were many, even those surrounding Herman Melville, uh, like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, two of the founders of Transcendentalism, um, that were kind of preaching this good news of a way to look at life, where uh, you know you are a good person, um, society is the thing that corrupts you, and so if you get outside of society and truly think for yourself then not only will you find truth, but then you can make lasting change in society around you. Well, not all people that were in this circle agreed with it. And so they called themselves anti-transcendentalists. And that's where we get Herman Melville, where you see a lot of... So, so,
2: but so that, that's different. I thought earlier you were saying that Herman Melville fell under the camp of dark romanticism, so is this another subsect of dark romanticism? Mm-hmm. Oh, so transatlanticism, that's a Death Cab album. Uh, <laughs> transcendentalism and this anti-transcendentalism, they fall under the umbrella of dark romanticism?
1: Yeah, you know how some subcultures uh, can have sub-subcultures underneath them as well? Like they'll break off into their own um subgenres of it. Right, mm-hmm. And so you would have underneath the subculture of romanticism or the really the philosophy of romanticism, you have transcendentalism, which is like an American offshoot, and that's more politically and action minded. Um, and, you know, you have a lot of early abolition movements, for example, and uh, right to vote for white women, honestly, at that time was coming out of transcendentalism. So you, you have a lot of these movements for social justice stemming from it. And so in reaction to that, you also have then the subculture of anti-transcendentalism, those who took a more cynical view of society and people in general. You know, it was pessimistic rather than optimistic. It, in fact, they, they viewed optimism as naive, Hmm. Some famous people that were in this, um, not only Herman Melville, but you can count Edgar Allan Poe as a part of this, right? We have just the the American romantics that took a dark view of it. So the American Gothics or the American Anti Transcendentalists, there are so many names it goes by. Uh, but you have Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter Dude, and Herman Melville as the three famous Americans. That just bucked against romanticism, bucked against like the rose colored uh, lenses that they were wearing.
2: And And that again, that was and what was the purpose behind that? The purpose was to show like the grim realities of life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, their work dwells on like guilt and remorse over past wrongs or things you can't get away from in your past. And they write stories and poetry and essays depicting human nature as inherently sinful and destructive, um, that people have unlimited potential to do evil. And so that you do look inside the heart of a person and what you see is something dark, not light. Um, Mm. And even for the writers like Poe, and we can even see like a, a... Herman Melville with this but they they would have these supernatural elements much like romantics and much like gothic writers Um, but you see evil as a a greater active force in the universe versus good as perhaps in or or neutral like you do in fairy tales so you also have this like respect for nature that they had they they saw that you see nature is vast and incomprehensible in these stories um and something that can't be understood by human beings
2: is that that famous what's that famous painting where the guy in a suit with his cane is like standing on a rock looking mm-hmm. over like though the water what what painting is that nope it's no like off the top wanderer, of your
1: head it's something like wanderer over a sea of clouds or something
2: does that fall in that same genre, though? Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, is that it's kind of that looking at
2: like the expansiveness of? Well, now I got to know what it's called.
1: Do you want me so to look it up? This
2: podcast will not go further until we tell the people. It's Wanderer name over
1: p- a sea of fog.
2: Wanderer over a sea of fog, and who who was the painter?
1: Caspar David Friedrich.
2: That's all I, all I wanted to know. I don't know why I jerked us in that direction, but I just wanted to, <laughs> wanted to say it. That's so where we're the going. So now people know. <laughs> they can Google it and see what I'm talking about. Yeah, all right. So see. now I want to also turn us back towards where I... I want to pull the pen where I stuck it and bring us back to Moby Dick. And so it sounds like everything his... Uh, Herman Melville's experiences, his desires of what he wanted to write, also paired with... What was successful and was and profitable seemed, seemed to marry so well with Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell me about how this came about and how it was received, I guess, when it was first written?
1: So a few things brought it about. First, Melville now had success with earlier novels well now, whereas he had more money. and so he bought a farm uh, near Nathaniel Hawthorne. And so they were kind of like at first, like they were riding buddies, I guess you could say. So he got out of the city. Um, How very romantic or anti-romantic that was, Mm -hmm. you know, leaving the city, going into nature. So he bought this larger estate and a farm um, near uh, one of his... Just his co-conspirators, one of the people who also adhered to a lot of the same philosophies. And they would show each other their writing and challenge one another and stay up late because they're talking over ideas for stories and just general philosophy. Um, So Nathaniel Hawthorne really encouraged Melville's development as a writer and went over a lot of the early ideas for Moby Dick. So that's one Of the factors leading to the creation of Moby Dick is that he got away from a lot of the pressures, um, left a lot of the societal influences that were pressuring him to write these uh, pulpy stories, as you're calling them. Um, The second thing is that there were some real life events that happened that he read about and, and really inspired him to consider how he could make that into a story because he knows so much about life on the, on the sea. And so he's able to write with fluidity using the correct terms, describing what people might be fearing or, um, exhilarating themselves over. And so one of the real life events that happened, um, was that there was a whaler called the Essex and it was on a two-year whaling expedition, crisscrossing the, Pacific and it was rammed by a sperm whale. And so they didn't really have any choice but to abandon ship. And so the crew that did survive on smaller lifeboats drifted for about four months with minimal supplies. And they drifted about Whoa. over 3,000 miles. Most of them died. And those who didn't, those who survived that time, they cannibalized those who were deceased. And then finally were rescued when they neared um, the coast of Chile. So one of the few people to survive that was the captain, George Pollard. And um, one magazine at the time, oh, I, forget what, I forget the name of the magazine, but um, in 1839, Melville read the story about this in a magazine that the captain gave. Um, and so really he was just... I guess you could say inspired by this real event of such a vast show of nature overtaking man. And probably also a similar fear that he had faced time and time again working on whaling ships. Also, um, within that same time frame, I think within that same year even, Melville read another story in another magazine and this time it was about an albino sperm whale. And it was famed for its deadly attacks on whaling ships trying to hunt it down. Um, so on any sign of aggression from the ship, this whale would spring into action and actually try to destroy any boat that attacked him, which I absolutely love. It was finally brought down in 1839. And when they found its body, there were at least 19 harpoons found washed in its sides. And so it had already... Um, gained reputation off the coast of Chile. So same area. And uh, the locals had called this um, Mocha Dick. And so it's M-O-C-H-A, Mocha, Mocha Dick. And so that's where we see this. So it was in the Knickerbocker magazine and it had an article entitled Mocha Dick or the White Whale of the Pacific. And so we see both of these two coming together within the same year uh, we see Herman Melville reading this, probably on his farm estate, which he named Arrowhead. Fun fact. And uh, getting this perfect inciting incident, almost, if I were to use tabletop role-playing game terms, <laughs> if almost having this inciting incident um, of the perfect event for him to explore this darker side of himself that he had been pushing against for so long so he's trying to find the story of humanity's relationship with the natural world as well as the relationship between a person and their own feeling of failure and knowing that even through a humongous adventure that is Moby Dick just that whole story at the very end of it You can come right up to this point of climax and still fail. And I really, really appreciate that about this story. Because typically you see that with these sweeping romances and these adventure stories. Wait, wait, wait,
2: wait, 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 wait. It sounds like you've already jumped to the end of Moby Dick. Now, not everyone on here, not everyone who's listening maybe has read Moby Dick. Half of this (laughs) podcast has not completely read Moby Dick. Oh, I would think
1: over half has not.
2: Over, I would say, a lot more than half haven't. Now, before we get to the end, because I also kind of want to know what happens to it, because (laughs) I have a slight bone to pick with this book. Now, maybe it's partly my own fault. And I feel like there's sometimes... Sometimes, I don't know if you're you're this way, but there's certain books that I just want to will myself to want to like for some (laughs) reason. I'm kind of that way with Hemingway. It's almost more about like the name of the the book or like the, the style of book where it's almost like I want to like that. So I want to will myself to like those kinds of books. And so I think I tried to read Moby Dick. I think I got about two thirds of the way through and I don't think that damn well ever showed up. Every It started off strong. We had a narrative going through. We got like Queequeg and people, and they're sleeping in a bed together and they're like getting on the ship and it's it's really mm-hmm. weird and but exciting and you're kind of following him. And then Melville starts whipping me over the head every other chapter with like, here's how you tie knots and here's what whale blubber is for and here's the different kind of wood on a boat and then, oh man, here's how you do this thing and here are the kind of clouds they have or whatever. And man, it was really... I tried... I feel like I could have gone back and just skipped all those chapters, but I felt like I wouldn't have been reading it the right way. Mm-hmm. But then I didn't even finish it at all. And I, I got bogged down and I didn't finish it. And so <laughs> can you, t- I'm I think I already know the answer to this question I'm about to ask. I don't know why he wrote it that way. And I know you mentioned earlier that sometimes his style of writing or what he chose to write was opening a window into a world that other people didn't know. Mm -hmm. Is that why this book reads like an encyclopedia sometimes?
1: I would say that that is a good reason why it does. Yes, this book is quite encyclopedic. It is is written for people. It's written for an audience that have never been to sea, that have never been on a whaling ship, perhaps not even just... On a commercial or merchant merchant ship either Uh, but he wanted to bring the ocean to his readers and he wanted to bring this whole experience that he had spent so many years in his life to them and almost like he's imparting this knowledge as a parting gift as well it's
2: like his life's work already it's like i'm gonna dump it all into this book and everything i know about being a, a whaler
1: exactly and and most people had no idea what it was like and so this is why he he stops to have he stops to have chapters on how to tie different styles of knots he has chapters on whale anatomies of right whales versus sperm whales he has chapters on how to harvest whale oils he even has a chapter on the different types of clam chowders and how they're made and why one is preferable to the other. And
2: it takes some
1: patience for those parts of the book. I get it.
2: It feels very, and this is me probably not having read a lot of classic literature and maybe the style of writing is just different. Uh, It feels very anti-narrative in that it's Mm -hmm. not moving the plot forward. Is that, a style of writing that just was before like the 1900s. Was that the genre of romanticism? Is that what they did?
1: Well, first and foremost, romantics were all about breaking conventions. They saw certain rule books for how do you write a story? How do you compose a symphony? How do you, how do you create a painting? And They wanted to throw out a lot of those rules, some with great success, others not so much. And so I see that in this book. I see a writer who clearly understands how to do narrative and to keep the story moving and to write things that push action forward in his earlier works. And even even in the parts of the story where it picks up, but then he pauses and says, you know what, while we're in the midst of preparing to harpoon this whale, let me pause and tell you about this. Almost like he's he's stopping time and then directing you um, to look at a specific part of the ship while something huge is going on off screen. And so I, in some way, like really appreciate that, how he recognized that there was this thirst uh, for his readers at this time in history um, to know more about the world around them, especially those who were still living in the city or on farms and had not left where they are, had not left their hometown and thirsted for adventure beyond And so this was almost like one of those deep dives that you could do on, pun intended, Uh, this is almost one of those deep dives that you could do on information about a life that people could live vicariously in this. But he also made it clear, like if people decided to pursue uh, becoming a sailor or even go on a whaling ship, uh, then that would be a boon or a bonus as well. But he, he wrote this with the explicit purpose of, People want to go into nature and they talk about hiking, they talk about the beautiful countryside, they even talk about scaling a mountain, but nobody has really told them about the majestic beauty and the terrifying realities and even the banalities or or the commonplace parts of living and working on the ocean.
2: So are you telling me a reader could have been like, you know what, I'm going to pack my bags, I'm going to go be a sailor, the captain's like, what are your, what's your resume, What, what's your experience, <laughs> and they throw down the fattest version of Moby Dick, and they're like, here's my experience, I've read this <laughs> damn book, like, oh my god, you can you start today? Is that how it works? They're <laughs> like, I know all that? these things.
1: Who's a, what What do you call it when, when you need a, somebody to vouch for you when you are a getting a job? Yeah, it's like, who's your reference? Herman Melville. Herman Melville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it was encyclopedic on purpose just to inform people of what it was actually like. And there were many who ate this up, who, who appreciated this in hindsight of... I'm getting to learn so this was almost like this is a better textbook of sailing than I typically would read. you know if I wanted to study sailing, you know i I could read a dry textbook or I could read a story that also teaches me all the ropes of sailing as it goes' all, all, all
2: these puns, come on now. <laughs> they are they're intentional. I who would
1: like. I be? Who would What's I be if like? there were no puns?
2: Okay, well then, I want to I want to do a spoiler warning for people who want to go read this later, even though this book's been out for so long. <laughs> 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 There's probably a a date that's like, okay, you can't you don't need to do spoiler warnings anymore, but I'm still going to be polite <laughs> before I ask you to tell me how the book ends because I've still never finished Moby Dick, and I want to at some point, but I Doubt that'll be anytime soon. So, yeah, I think, I think, I don't even, I didn't even see Moby Dick show up. What goes down? And I don't want to spend, I don't want to belabor this point. This is you humoring me. How does the book end?
1: <laughs> you know how you say you really enjoy Jaws? And one uh, one thing that that movie does well is that it doesn't introduce the antagonist. You don't see... Mm-hmm the shark on the screen until towards the end
2: but you but you do see you you are introduced to the shark at the very beginning and sprinkled throughout you don't see it but you get like a, a fin or you get the dorsal fin or you or, mm-hmm. or it's pov this one i feel like moby dick doesn't like there's you talk about him i guess but he does. No. Uh,
1: he chooses to introduce Moby Dick throughout the novel in different ways. Like the first time you're introduced to Moby Dick is actually seen as you meet Captain Ahab, that you realize like his whole right leg is missing. Um, and right, then, so it's planted
2: that way. Like the yeah, characters that, introduced then, that way through his through mm-hmm. his damage, and yeah.
1: And then early on in the voyage, you catch sight of him. His, oh, you do. Uh, okay. Yeah, you and a plume of, from his spouts uh, oh, you know, okay. on the on the horizon, and then so also okay. See how, him does in a pod. how does it end? How
2: does it end?
1: So, if you want to know how it ends, is Captain Ahab fails?
2: Does he go Captain Quint, and does he get eaten?
1: Uh, he goes down. I'll say that. So they finally come, you know, come to blows with Moby Dick who takes down the ship and they're in... So they would have to get in a rowboat and then that's how they would harpoon a a whale. And so they're already in one of the rowboats with the harpoon and Moby Dick just brings them into a a whirlpool or a maelstrom by swimming around them. Oh, whoa. And then totally just obliterates everyone on the rowboat one by one until all you have left is your narrator, Ishmael. And then this question of did Ahab actually take him down with him um and it's so it's it's left up to you to decide and whenever i've read it i i totally am on the board on board with ahab um you know as ahab died he also took moby dick down with him
2: it's yeah it's you're building up this kind of unstoppable force and immovable object where they both these two titans, kind of, they build up, finally clash, and they take each other down. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, that sounds okay. So, what happens to Quikwag?
1: Oh, poor Quikwag! Poor, every, it, I mean, the only person to it's survive is only... Oh, is he only ma- oh Yeah. No.
2: Okay. And he's like clinging
1: to, to parts of the ship for days until finally he's rescued oh, by oh, a shoot. passing ship. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, I need to go back and read it. All right, spoiler warning over. People can un-earmuff themselves. All right, man, we'll we'll move on. Okay, so that's Moby Dick. Re- before I move on to how that correlates with with uh, of mon- of Mice and Men and Monsters, I would like to know about how it was received at the time when it came out. Was it was it off, you know, from minute 1 was it like, "Oh, this is a classic." Did people like it? Not like it? Uh yeah, how was it received?
1: Woof! It was a critical and a commercial failure.
2: Oh wow!
1: Yeah it it's it's kind of like sad. So it it was kind of like his jewel that he had wanted to work on for so long, and just nobody read it. Um, he was like. 32 or 33 when it was published so i like align with this so much of like i'm at that same stage in my life and just the idea of like you pour so much into a project and it's like your passion
2: project sounds like yeah, yeah, Like it sounds like that was everything yeah. he was building towards
1: mm-hmm. and so his his subsequent novels also failed overall and he fell into debt and 40 years after moby dick was published he died um and kind of Died under the radar, and it wasn't until the 1920s um, when his work was rediscovered and praised by scholars, and then gained renown. Posthumously, why?
2: Why then? Like why? I guess why didn't people like it then, and what made people rediscover it and like 60 years later?
1: So, in the 1920s, we get the Lost Generation, um, post World War One. Young writers, artists, composers, just who are taking almost a nihilistic view of life and a very pessimistic view, much like our dark romantics. Um, Is and, that because of
2: post World War One?
1: Yeah, and the carnage they saw there, and just that whole, just that whole ordeal. Um, and so it's it's kind of this work which delves into just how little mankind is in the face of larger forces than themselves, namely nature, and also the drive for vengeance and the bloodshed that comes out of that and how it can come to nothing, as well as the searching into the dark depths of somebody's psyche and exploring, even trying to come up with a way to explore, like allegorically, um, how people fight against such inner demons like uh, depression and even anxiety, um, much of what Melville was struggling with. Um, it just, it was the right time. That's what they were it interested just spoke, in. And what's the, it just that's spoke what they were looking for. To a different
2: for. generation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And so it's, it, it was finally the audience that he was waiting for, but it just came about 30 years after his death.
2: I'd give anything not to be appreciated in my own time.
1: <laughs> that fits. That <laughs> That's a random good.
2: random friends reference. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I remember I remember I went to I was in Amsterdam and I went to the Van Gogh Museum and you can walk around the museum in chronological order and you see like his the rise and everything he did and his relationship with his brother and this and that. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I thought he was I thought he was you know renowned from the get-go and you uh, you you track along with everything and then 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 like you get to the point where he's dead he dies he kills himself and you're like oh what and yeah. no one you weren't appreciated no one no one cared and it's only mm-hmm. for whatever reason just time and this decades or years later whatever it is and just the right. It takes the right person or the right group of people finding it and appreciating mm-hmm. it, and then it blows up. Then it's just that's crazy how that how that works. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. It is all right.
2: all right. I want to close out this in depth conversation on Moby Dick, the novel, the same way I want to try and do it each time we move forward, and it's <laughs> okay. put on your teacher hat or whatever equivalent that is, and. Tell me, or tell someone listening, why they should read this book. Why should they stop what they're doing and and bust out this classic novel?
1: Stop what you're doing right now. Stop
2: everything. Damn it. <laughs> it
1: doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, you know, there's there's a few things that I would use as kind of just teasers, hopeful, ho- hoping to pull them in. You know, I, I would start off with something surface level like, hey, you like Starbucks coffee? Well, guess who that's named after? <laughs> uh, hey, remember
2: it's... that random episode of Parks and Recreation where Ron Swanson said it's his favorite book? Hey, he has good taste.
1: <laughs> Fun fact, though, Starbucks also named themselves the Pequod instead. Wait, what? Is the, the the name of the boat. Yeah.
2: Or Pequod. Wait, 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 what? Did Starbucks also called themselves the Pequod?
1: They almost named their company oh they almost Pequod. did I they
2: also did I was like what no
1: they almost named themselves Pequod but then they're like it's eh, kind of a bad marketing strategy so instead they went with the name what a ship that
2: went a ship that went down <laughs>
1: yeah exactly um, so instead they went with Starbuck who is the voice of reason
2: that's so cool yeah and also wasn't that isn't that the character name in uh, Battlestar Galactica isn't there a Starbuck in uh-huh. that too mm-hmm. yeah
1: yes. Uh, but in, in, in all seriousness, I think that this book is really relatable, especially for people who are tired of a culture that just is about consumerism and an easy fix for entertainment. And I think I'm seeing that a lot uh, with different social media I'm involved in, but also just even listening to students, how there's a new ache that is coming of something more, something deeper. Um, And even perhaps something that I am, (laughs) that I'm personally interested in, but that is gaining in popularity for a reason um, is the cottagecore aesthetic. But really what it is, it's romanticism. It's this longing for... A more simplistic life, um, more almost like minimalistic hmm. uh, a take on life with an appreciation for nature and making things yourself or um, shopping small and supporting businesses that do make things themselves and even going along the lines of learning something new and delving into it and really immersing yourself in the knowledge of a specific niche category in this case (laughs) the the ocean and sailing so i i I think this is like if you are into that if if that's your aesthetic or if that is your interested subculture then this is a perfect way to live it out as well you know and you can completely be honest with it you can check the book out from a library or borrow it from someone, Mm. or they have it online free at project Gutenberg. Um, so it's not about, you know, going to buy it. It's more about just taking it in and taking it in small chunks. And I understand, I will tell this to anybody. It is a difficult book to read. And the unfortunate thing is, is that it's really, I I think it's a, a good idea to read it with some life experience under your belt and it doesn't make sense to read in a high school classroom.
2: Yeah, reading that yeah, reading that mm-hmm. in high school. I mean that's how that's how a lot of high school books are, I feel like. It's like yeah. I appreciate it so much more with some life experiences under my belt, not still living at home and <laughs> never having stepped out and been an adult. Yeah.
1: I when I was rereading it for you know th- this adventure, I appreciated it so much more um, and honestly, if when I had read it before, it was just skimming because I had to. And this time, I'm finding kind of since I have undergone suffering actually in my life have you know since I have now held a job and been a part of something larger than myself and experienced. Um, even frustration and even boredom, and sat in that boredom, um, all that helped me to better under, understand this book and better appreciate it as well. Um, and I noticed humor where I didn't notice it mm. before. I noticed like moments that made me kind of choke up because they were actually like moments of hope in a very dark slow narrative um and even just to see true friendship between people who don't even speak each other's language it was really or hard.
2: even like a sense of longing mm-hmm. that i feel like comes with maturity and i mean we're still only in our mid early 30s but mm-hmm. that that sense of longing and yeah it's it's hard to to understand that when you're seven well, there, there was or one 18.
1: line, yeah, exactly. There was one line that I made sure to include in our adventure. um and it's when Starbuck is having his monologue right before the mutiny. um, and it's from the beginning of the book when Ishmael is talking about how he cannot leave his life at sea that over and over again, he returns to becoming a sailor, despite really the hardships he's faced. And he says, um, but as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. And it's like, ah, that's like a perfect way Mm -hmm. to put, like you have a longing for something larger than yourself. I even Mm -hmm. have a, a framed print of it in my classroom. So that's a line that I absolutely love from the story.
2: Well, that's a perfect segue of where I wanted to go next. Um, and thank you for all that insight. I got it. that's so much stuff I didn't I didn't know. That's really interesting. Uh, so, you read Moby Dick, and then as mm-hmm. you were constructing the storyline that we went through and played through in Oh Man, Ma'am, what are some Easter eggs that you plan- that you took from the book and you threw in the campaign? Uh, is it e- either characters or moments? Uh, lines of dialogue or narration what are, what are some of your I, I know I'm not gonna have you list them all but what just rapid fire what are some of your favorites or some of the larger ones
1: I mean the, the names I, I for all the NPCs they are names directly from the novel just as we did with Frankenstein and so you know we have Ishmael who is Millie's fae familiar in the form of a chameleon and that is the first person narrator of the story and the only survivor of the wreck after facing off against Moby Dick. Um, We have Starbuck who is the first mate on our ship under Ahab also first mate on the ship under Ahab in the story. Um, I decided to tie them together not just as longtime friends but in the story's case because I was talking a lot about like the curse of the bloodline and i needed like someone to take it more personally so i made them instead into cousins um but yeah it has wonderful names in it like tashtego and um you know let me go to my we have tashtego and elijah and quequeg and so we have great names on here I, there's even like a Doughboy is the name of one of them he's the the cook on there but didn't quite get around to having him as an NPC for you to meet (laughs) but maybe in the future if you ever get back on the ship (laughs) (laughs)
2: that's true that's true Mm -hmm. Uh, there was even there
1: was even a character named Pip and uh I was like oh Oh, we already have the the mouse yeah but I decided not to like pursue that because that was like you know not going to push the plot forward. that would
2: have been too confusing right yeah any any lines of narration that you spoke or any um
1: mm-hmm. dialogue yeah uh let me give you a few so um there was and yeah
2: there, give it like you said give, a preface give the you the context, it preface for the moment that'd be great thank you
1: so there's this one line that i tweaked so that it fits but uh in the adventure in oh ma'am ma'am it's when um ishmael is talking about millie and being her familiar and how he would go along with whatever she decided to do, that he would be with her till the end. And in the book, it's Ishmael talking about Queequeg and how um, he and they they had become like brothers to one another. And so Ishmael says, from that hour, I clove to Queequeg like a barnacle. Yea, till poor Queequeg took his last long dive. So it's, I, I love that simile, cleaving to him like a barnacle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um And uh, another one is I I use this in the narration when I was describing Testago's body um, after the horrible (laughs) encounter with the Advocate, which the Advocate is the name of a of a chapter in Moby Dick. So I saw that name of the chapter. I'm like, oh, Oh, that's cool. I don't think I knew that. That's cool. Yeah. But the original one is the red tide now poured from all sides of the monster like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled not in brine but in blood, which bubbled and seethed for furlongs behind in their wake. And so I, I, it was describing the first kill that they make on the ship, and uh, it's pretty graphic. And it's, and I, when I was reading that, I'm like, I could use a lot of this for a different graphic scene, um, and get a lot of the same kind of disgust and horror across. Um, and then my favorite one that I used when agatha is talking to penny about this resistance for the first time and penny asks her well where is it at where is this island that you want us to go to and agatha responds with a quote straight from the novel Uh, she says it is not down in any map true places never are and i that's it's such like, a good line. Yeah, I remember, when you, good line. I remember
2: when you yeah. said that when we were acting, at, and it's one of those lines I heard, and my ears perked up. And not that I didn't think you could write something that beautiful. I was like, well, like that. that was a good line. Yeah. That was a <laughs> good line. And you found, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate how you pull these lines as you're reading, not knowing where they might go necessarily, but you have them almost like in your pocket to pull from whenever the mm-hmm. moment presents itself. Cause I remember when you threw that down, it seemed so effortless as, as almost as if Kimmy fell right into your hand and, and just lobbed you a softball for like a perfect moment just to knock that line. And it was, yeah, that was such a great moment. I love that.
1: Oh, I was very giddy on the inside when she, when she had Penelope Penelope asked that question, I was like, yes, here we go. <laughs>
2: My time um, to shine.
1: Yeah, but that helps out with modular planning when you just have certain NPCs you want them to talk to and you're ready with these uh, different possibilities. And so I have these quotes straight from the novel that I know would be perfect in si- certain situations should your characters choose to go that direction. And so there are lines that I never got to because your characters didn't choose you know, that option, didn't choose to go down a certain path. And... That's what I I like about that, where it gives Mm -hmm. you guys freedom uh, to be true to your characters as opposed to me railroading you and telling you, no, you have to do this. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciated that part. And I got really excited that I got to say that line.
2: That was so good. I'm glad you did too. (laughs) All right. uh, Let's close out this episode of Book Reports with a few questions. Um, Thank you, everyone who sent questions in. Again, if you have questions or want to... Leave comments or give us ideas for future books to do in the future, mm-hmm. as long as they're public domain, not copyrighted, yes. or your copyright copyrights open at least. Please send them. Uh you can reach us out at show at gmail.com. And we're also you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram at Omam Show. So mm-hmm. we would love to answer your questions if we're able to get to them and uh take your any any kind of input for what's working, what's not working. Uh, special magical items, other books we can use. So we'd love to hear from you. So here uh, is the first question. It is from Claire. And it says, how long after recording does it take to get an episode up?
1: Oh, this is all you. You yeah, are I'll intrepid take this. editor.
2: Step aside. I almost called <laughs> you Dungeon Teacher. Shine. I almost called you Dungeon Teacher. Master Teacher. Time for the <laughs> master editor to shine. So yeah, I... Caitlin, Caitlin and I, uh, she does a lot of the pre work for the with the with the DMing, obviously, and then I do a lot of the post work with the editing and taking all the files. I think if if I have all everyone's individual files because we all record uh, socially distanced in this pandemic world, but mm-hmm. so they all send them to me, and I think if I'm if I'm just starting and putting it all down, it probably takes me about eight hours. ...or so to finish an episode, and I know that's a lot more than most podcasts, I know that I certainly am probably more tedious than it needs to be, but I go through each of our uh, individual recordings one at a time, I clean it up, I try and remove a lot of smacking or tapping, mouth sounds, or a lot of ums or hesitations and clean or even like cars driving by outside. I try and very intently listen to each track go through. It's very tedious and this takes a long time because each episode, I mean, could be about an hour long. they about maybe a little longer. And so doing that four times for each track takes a while. And once I have all of ours cleaned up for the most part, I'll put them all together. All four, I'll lay them all on top of each other, all synced. And then I'll play that. And then it's listening just to see what works, what doesn't work. I know when when we're improving, um, not every joke may land. And, hey, sometimes that's funny. And I'll leave it in there just because an epic failure is always funny also. But also sometimes it's just, this is dragging. This is a little slow. We can cut this. All right, mm-hmm. this is getting a little redundant. So things like that is kind of cleaning it up. And so trying to give like the tightest episode. I, I deliver the tightest episode I can. So yeah, doing all of that, and then doing the previously on, doing Caitlin's little plug in the middle, doing a little producing depending on the episode. If it's heavy narration, I might try and throw some music in there, finding find some music and and throw that on there. Maybe it, I haven't done much sound effects, but I know I did the thunder crashing a couple times, and I really enjoyed that. So Trying to find cool. the balance. It's, it's
1: been it's been awesome to see just you progress in this sphere as well and and what you have learned and, and taught yourself and how you've added bit by bit. So thank you. Well yeah. It's, it's
2: really fun taking it and then just adding to it. I mean, so much mm-hmm. of it is just, it's theater of the mind, but if there's a couple, a little producing I can do to add, I mean, I loved uh, messing with the sound effect of the advocate's voice <laughs> and kind of giving some kind of like, yeah. raspy, creepy demons kind of style. Voice. I was so glad you that did that because really it, it
1: made it, yeah, it made it more threatening. Where the voice acting of yours truly is a far cry from that. So, yeah, you're, was, you're really nice good. It's just that. like doing, oh, doing I, I forget a, voices doing a special
2: I, effects voice like that. I mean, can't it's do that, perfect. but yeah, I was, was so
1: so pumped that you did that.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I, I could, and I know other podcasts, I, we could seriously just take all of our, I could just, I could sync them all up and just have it go live, but that'd be messy and really long. So, I try and clean it up for you guys. So, it's a really, uh, really smooth product just to listen to. So, that's my answer for that. And uh, I have a two parter question I'll do as the last one, both from Jenny. Okay. And the first one is Does the game happen completely with imagination? Or are there game pieces and props?
1: For us, it is completely our imagination. Uh, Sometimes when you are playing Dungeons & Dragons, you can have props or you can even have a digital version of a gaming board in front of you. And you can move your characters across it or show the different terrains or what it would look like in combat. And for many reasons, that is very helpful. Um, you know, when I am playing oh, yeah. in other games, I really enjoy having a visual aspect of it. But I think what we decided, because we knew as a podcast that this was going to be an audio-only format, that we wanted to keep ourselves away from relying on visuals that the audience couldn't see. And so Yeah, we didn't want to leave me... the
2: audience behind.
1: Exactly. So instead of me referencing something that... Hey, if you guys look on there, it's it's right in front of you, mm-hmm. and then you guys react to it. But we don't then describe it and paint a word picture for the audience. Then that falls flat, and so yeah, we it'd be don't really to easy to hold up a, it.
2: it'd be really easy to hold up a picture to you guys and point at something, but that and you guys get it, but no one else does. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we try and do completely theater of the mind here and keep it that way though and sometimes
1: that, it goes off flawlessly and other times i have to repeat myself uh, oh yeah or, for me every time i people, have
2: such i cannot picture things in my mind that <laughs> well. sometimes
1: people don't like quite get like what. so it's 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 also a practice in, in we all know you're talking about me listen uh, to any episode i was and trying I not a, to throw you i ask bus. a
2: follow-up clarifying question like three times each time <laughs> But yeah i mean we so but that that's this game if you if you're new to d d or don't know how to D&D works then absolutely it's it's just depending on what that what the party wants to do We've played games in person obviously again mm-hmm. before the pandemic and with that you know some of us might have little miniatures and you draw on a board and you move around or you might have a uh an overhead not an overhead projector but you might have like some kind of projector that shows maps and, and moves things and and that's really fun we also, have played digitally on Roll20 and on mm-hmm. there you can put little coins and maps and move around and it just helps right. kind of get everyone on the same page of movement and what's going on. But again, that's that would completely leave out the audience and we certainly didn't want to do that. Exactly. Uh, her second question from Jenny is, were there any parts of the design for the ship that you didn't get to describe or was underplayed?
1: I think, yeah, there there were parts of the ship design that, uh, you know, I had in my head and I was, you know, in, in my planning stage and in the documents that I was creating that didn't even come up because it would be one of those where it's just like, uh, it's not really like helping the story move forward, so I don't need this. But like it, it, one of the designs I had for the Pequod is knowing that at the very least... Awin had this ability, I forget if Bertram had the ability to control water, did he?
2: Yes, shape water. Okay, so, mm-hmm.
1: two, yeah, so two of you had the shape water spell, and so I had this where there were small streams of water that funneled through various sections of the ship and could be collected by players, either as a fresh source oh, of water cool. or for you to work with, and it just didn't come up. Hmm. Uh, so it's just things like that in my mind, but any other, any
2: other people or aspects of the ship? Like, was there like, I don't know, was there a dining hall? I mean, there's not a dining hall on a ship. Was there, was there a kitchen or some Mm -hmm. kind of area with other people that we just didn't even go to?
1: Uh, there was a kitchen slash storage area. And that's uh, where Doughboy was maybe? (laughs) Doughboy was there. Um, some others like there. There's a character Elijah who was described for his personality as a bugbear in the in the novel, and so I'm like, oh, well, I'll just make him an actual bugbear in the oh, world. Oh, he was of described D&D. as
2: a bugbear. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, and he was on the ship, and we never got to meet this dude.
1: Uh, no, because it was one of those where I was narrowing down, you know, which gotcha. Which Too NPCs going are you gonna meet? And so I might have to once again. I this isn't going to be your last hurrah on the good ship peckwad, there will right. be more times to come. And so you'll get to meet. You'll get one to of meet my Elijah favorite aspects.
2: Bugbear. One of my favorite aspects of the ship that you made was Herman as the masthead. <laughs> yeah. uh, real quick. Where did you get that idea? Because I thought that was really fun.
1: I was just thinking, what is a part of a ship that can be magical? I, yeah. Just what are parts of the ship that I can manipulate with magic? And a lot of times, You have mastheads that have figures, you know, carved into it as if it's a female mermaid, you know, leaning over the prow or a man blowing a horn or some kind of fearsome creature. And so I thought, what if it was what if it was a magical figurehead that interacted with you and could be a way to find out what's going on around the ship as well?
2: Yeah, and that so. was a really fun mechanic and a really, a really <laughs> good was. character. I'm looking forward yeah, to Yeah, and I wanted to name one of the things Moore. after the author. So yeah, I, you that know. was great. Mm-hmm. That was great. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much uh, for walking us through Moby Dick and its history. Happy to do so. And a little so. behind the scenes uh, master teacher information. That's, you know, and uh, I feel like really I
1: fun. barely scratched the surface. Like, I feel like I didn't do this justice. So I, I can only just say to you guys... Go out and try it. Give it a good go, uh, and even if it's a book that you come to back again, just reading it in small bits and pieces and enjoying it that way, it's still well worth it. So even if you don't do it in one sitting, you can enjoy it throughout different pockets of time for the rest of your life.
2: That's what I'll be doing. You've <laughs> you've convinced me. I'm gonna pick it back up. I'm gonna finish do this it. book. Do, Do it. yes, it. ma'am. I will. All right. Well, thank you, Caitlin, and thank you so much out there for listening. Again, if you have any uh, comments for us or ideas for books uh, or other questions for future Q and As and these book reports, mm-hmm. again, oh ma'am, ma'am, show uh, at Gmail, or you'll find us on Instagram mm-hmm. and Twitter at oh ma'am, ma'am, show. And also something that we keep forgetting to announce, but we're going to start doing it moving forward. If you have time, if you're able to, what would really help our podcast a lot is if you mm-hmm. can rate and review us on on Apple, iTunes, or whatever. I'm not sure if you can able to do that on Spotify or other places, but wherever you listen, if you're able to rate us, five stars would be great. But hey, we just want you to be honest. We'll be
1: honest. Share
2: <laughs> yeah, share what you think. Let us know what you think, and let other people know what you think because that's the way yeah, we're we, going to we grow this really show.
1: We would really appreciate that uh, when you rate us and even when you comment, that is more likely to put us uh, on the pages of people who have no idea we exist. This allows those who might enjoy this to find out about us. And that's how the word gets out. So we would really appreciate that if you would rate and review us.
2: Absolutely. Please help grow the show. We need your Mm help. So thank you again so much for listening and... Yeah, we'll see you in the next episode, which will be starting a new book. If you couldn't Ooh. tell from the cliffhanger with the green hoods, <laughs> it's going to be... It's Robin Hood! Robin Hood. <laughs> Let's go. All right.
1: All right.
2: Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye.
0: The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. You start with your own breathing. Match the rhythm of the breeze that carves the canopy, the birds and bugs chirping in set intervals. Feel the subtle pulse rising up from the ground beneath you. To wander is to dance with the forest. But the forest isn't just the partner. She's the music, the style. She's the rhythm. She's the set of ancient steps and movements that have been passed down from one dancer to another. She teaches you to dance the dance she invented to the music she's singing in a tonal system she thought up one night as it pleased her. You breathe and you listen. And you wait for your place Your first step The call to The Wanderer is a new fairy folktale podcast from T.H. Ponders, a member of the Fable and Folly Network. Listen to the show by searching for The Wanderer in Apple Podcasts or by visiting www.callofthewander.com.